listening to the CXMH podcast. CXMH is a podcast at the intersection of faith and mental health. Hey, welcome back to the show. My name is Robert Moore and I am here with my co-host, Dr. Holly Hey, Robert. I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm, I'm good. I'm enjoying being here talking to you. Oh, the feeling is mutual, as always. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I like it. Right before we record, we kind of get all our, you know, frustrations or jokes out or whatever we need to, and then we come on yes. here and be professional. Right, uh, yeah, I'm just kidding. We're professional in all aspects of our <laughs> lives. Uh, what's, what's been happening with you the past, the past week? Oh, this last week. I, you know... I think we're just we're just finding our rhythm with the start of the semester. I know I feel like each week I'm kind of saying like, oh, we're you know we're finding our rhythm or we're resting or whatever. But but I really do feel like this last week uh, was good in the sense that you know our family had a little more. We had some more opportunities than usual to be still, to stay home, to rest, um, practice Sabbath, to you know just kind of you know, hang out together and have fun. We did have, um, Oliver's birthday party was last Saturday. So that was kind of a fun little thing. We had some family and friends come over and, you know, just to celebrate him turning three. And so that's always fun, but, um, yeah, yeah. but I mean, it's been a good week. What about you? How have you been doing? Good. Uh, kind of, I guess the opposite of what, I mean, we, we have maybe had less time to rest. I mean, I don't know. It's just, Things are back in the the swing of it, which again I say kind of every week, but that also means kind of some event type things are kick, kicking back up because I didn't schedule any for you know kind of that chunk there. And so uh, we were just talking a little bit about I did a, a suicide prevention training that was really cool. That there was a, a pretty diverse chunk of people that came out to, which is really cool. Yeah, that's um, great. And then uh, I guess this coming Sunday, so the day before or the day, yeah, the day before this episode releases, I'm speaking at a youth group just about like mental mm-hmm. health type things and whatnot. So uh, some more of those things are kind of picking back up, are back on the schedule. So that always throws kind of a, a wrench in maybe a normal flow, but it's always yeah. really fun and energizing for me. Um, I really love teaching and, you know, getting yeah. to kind of give, give good information to people that are really interested in it. So that's always really fun. Yeah, um, that's but, good. Yeah. And it's important. I mean, it's so important that you're getting out there and sharing some of this. Um, I mean, I actually, I had talked with one of my previous students not long ago um, who um, is now working in a school setting. And she was telling me that, you know, that suicidal ideation was one of the things that recently popped up with one of her clients. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's, you know, she had said that, you know, getting that training during her, during the program was really helpful so that when she was in those settings or hearing these, these comments from the student, I mean, it, she, she really did feel comfortable and ready. Whereas, yeah. you know, not having that information, it's, you know, it's not something to take lightly. So yeah. I'm so glad that you're going out and doing this and, and having these conversations with lots of different folks. And I mean, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. Work. That's interesting. 
this isn't going to be interesting to anybody except you and me, essentially. But you mentioned getting training during the program, right? And uh, there's yeah. a good chunk of data that says like a, a lot of master's programs for mental health things like don't really address suicidality well. Yeah. And so uh, that's interesting. That's a good thing for, I assume, Baylor's program, mm-hmm. right? So yeah. That's, yeah. yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. I know there's a, yep. kind of a big push in that area right now. So yeah, yeah, that's just for you and me. Yeah, no, it's good. <laughs> good. And I'm super excited that I was going to say at some point that, that we're going to be able to connect soon. Hopefully I'll be out in Atlanta in a couple of weeks. So that yeah. might be fun. But... Yeah. yeah. We might record but... our first ever in-person podcast. Yeah. This yeah. The first ever one that CXMH has ever done with two people ever, in the same ever. room. That's right. In any yep. capacity. That's uh, right. Yeah. Well, I know awesome. you and Steve had connected at one point, wasn't it? Was it Waffle House that y'all went to? Yeah, but we didn't record anything. So it, we just yeah. got breakfast and hung out. So yeah, yeah. that's the only yeah. time that Steve and I, so both of you, I've only like that's right. seen in person once each. Yeah. So that's yeah. right. Oh, I'm so excited. It's going to be fun. Powers of technology. Yes. Thank yeah. goodness. That's awesome. Well, should we shift to, to this week's episode? Yeah, absolutely. Hey, if you, uh, real quick, if you missed last week's episode, we made some announcements about like our Patreon and things like that, as well as the Facebook group is now open to everyone. So go check all that out. You can find that information wherever. We're not going to, you know, go all the way into it, but uh, just a quick reminder. Because mm-hmm. you can start yeah. commenting, leaving questions and things for future episodes. So yes, that's pretty cool. which we already have folks starting to do that. So yeah. that's, I mean, it's super exciting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this episode is mm-hmm. about social anxiety. Mm-hmm. This is someone I've been trying to have on for a while. I'm a fan of hers. She has a podcast that I've listened to for a while, and then uh, her book is fantastic, right? So Dr. Ellen Hendrickson, uh, mm-hmm. her, she has her podcast, The Savvy Psychologist, and then also she last year, early last year, came out with this book, How to Be Yourself, Quiet Your Inner Critic, and Rise Above Social Anxiety. Uh, and this book is honestly fantastic. It, I think mm-hmm. it might be the most like readable and accessible book I've read yet from a mental health professional. Oh, and that's I, just, awesome. I guess I just mean, instead of saying like, here is kind of our mental health jargon and I'm going to explain that to you and then use it. She kind of just says, yeah. here's, we're going to talk about it using normal language. And yeah. like you and I reading it would say like, Oh, we kind of know what, what she's doing here, but mm-hmm. she just writes it normally like a, a, a yeah. normal person. Uh, yeah. And so I thought well, it was accessible. really good. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, even in our episode, as she's talking about, it, I mean, I, um, I mean, I could tell just in the way that she was describing some of the concepts throughout the episode that she really did make them relatable and she translated them to be understandable. And I mean, that anyone really could, could, could get some information and then know how to apply that for those in their lives. And yeah. I mean, I, that is not easy for, um, academics to do, but so I really commend her for, her hard work in being able to to translate that research and yeah. and like that well yeah yeah and you'll hear it as you said in the episode just the way she talks yeah. about things is, is so friendly and like mm-hmm. clever and you know there's lots of little clever things in there so uh, yeah. that's very much the style of her podcast too which is part of why I really like it mm-hmm. but the, I mean she talks about a whole bunch of things and even just the book if you uh, are someone or someone you know maybe you say like would meet the criteria for a social anxiety disorder. But even if you're just, Mm -hmm. you know, I learned a bunch from both the interview and the book and I wouldn't say that I, you know, meet 
any particular diagnostic criteria, but mm-hmm. uh, I'm a little more shy than I'd like to mm-hmm. be in unfamiliar situations. I like resort to my phone a lot or, mm-hmm. you know, um, and so I think even in things like that, it was helpful to me. So, and we talk mm-hmm. about kind of the spectrum of shyness to, yes. to anxiety ridden. Yeah. So I don't know. I or found being it an really introvert, helpful. right? Yeah. Being an introvert versus an extrovert and how that mm-hmm. pops up within all this too. Yeah. 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 So yeah. practically helpful, I would say for almost anyone, because nobody's yeah. ever just like, completely not anxious in weird situations, right. you know, so. Um, That's right. Yeah. Or, and and even if you are, you know, comfortable in a variety of situations, we talk about how this applies. If you have someone in your life who does struggle with some social anxiety or who may be a little bit more shy or, you know, just trying to navigate how to interact with others in unfamiliar settings. And so yeah. I think that it's super relatable really for anyone in this episode. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, awesome. We will get to it a little bit short of an intro, but that's totally fine. That's totally fine. You yeah. probably clicked it not to listen to us. So here we go is our <laughs> episode with Dr. Ellen Hendrickson. Awesome. Enjoy. Today, we are so excited to be joined by Dr. Ellen Hendrickson. She is a clinical psychologist who helps millions calm their anxiety and be their authentic selves through her award-winning Savvy Psychologist podcast, which has been downloaded over 5 million times, and at Boston University's Center for Anxiety and Related Disorders. Uh, Her scientifically-based zero-judgment approach has been featured in places like New York Magazine, Tonic, Psychology Today, Scientific American, Huffington Post, tons of others. The savvy psychologist has won a bunch of awards, such as the Best New Podcast of 2014 on iTunes and other things. She earned her PhD at UCLA and completed her training at Harvard Medical School, and she's also the author of the 2018 book, How to Be Yourself, Quiet Your Inner Critic, and Rise Above social anxiety. Ellen, how are you doing today? I am doing great. And thank you so much for having me on. I've been really looking forward to it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I have too. I've been reading this book recently and really, really enjoying it. It's been on my list for a while. So I've uh, definitely been looking forward to, to chatting with you for quite some time. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you for reading it. Yeah, of course. Obviously, we're gonna we're gonna talk a little bit about social anxiety today. But are there any you know interesting facts that the audience should know about you that aren't in kind of your official bio there? Oh, that's a hmm, that's a good one. Um, <laughs> Sorry, the first the first question. Look at that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> tell us tell us something really interesting about yourself. No pressure. Um, Moderately no, just, interesting. That's okay. Yeah, random things. I have a goal to go to every national park. Um, I like travel mm-hmm. hacking. Um, oh gosh, I don't know. Um, I'm certified as a yoga teacher, but I haven't practiced in years. Uh, yeah, random things. Yeah. So there you go. Those were all interesting. Sure. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, I know that your interest in studying social anxiety, maybe you can tell us a little bit about how you got into that, but I know that it starts with the very first memory that you have, right? Right, right. So that's a that's a, a funny story that's that that is in the book. And uh, so yeah, my first memory of all time is when I was three years old and I was in preschool. And so I had a I was lucky enough to have a you know this very lovely, gentle, supportive teacher who would play guitar for us when it was rest time. And so we would all you know ten or fifteen of us whatever would lie down on you know mats on the floor and she would play guitar and sing. And I remember one day that I woke up. This was not meant to be nap time. This was meant to be rest time, but I had accidentally fallen asleep. And I woke up to see her and all my classmates staring at me 
because they were cl- they'd clearly been waiting for me to wake up. And mm. my teacher, whose name was Mrs. Fish, said, there you are. Like, oh, hi, sweetheart. Like, how nice of you to join us again or something like that. It was nothing judgmental, totally kind. And I just remember being mortified and closing my eyes so I didn't have to be the center of attention or to see all the people looking at me. So I want to highlight that nothing untoward happened. And but there was just something about being the center of attention that was like just not in my DNA. So Mm -hmm. that that happens to be my first memory. Interestingly, my my path to um, studying and writing about social anxiety is not a linear one. So I I actually got into psychology through kind of a a medical backdoor. Um, After college, I was working at uh, a gay and lesbian community health center. And uh, the psychologist I was working with was working with um, people who were HIV positive. And he would treat uh, folks who were HIV positive and depressed he would treat their depression with cognitive behavioral therapy. And we watched as their HIV outcomes got better. So their viral load went down, their mm. CD4s went up. And I was hooked. It was amazing. And so that is actually how I got hooked into psychology and doing therapy. And I just pivoted my way over the years and ended up in this home of, of anxiety and social anxiety. So I was working with HIV. I pivoted over to cancer. And then another mentor was studying folks with uh, late stage cancer who were anxious, which is basically everybody with late stage cancer. And and so but then and then pivoted more into like pure anxiety. And when I got there, I was like, oh, these are my people. I am home. (laughs) And so so that so and that's that's where I live today. And I love it. And I have a special place in my heart for social anxiety. Yeah. That's mm, awesome because in yeah. this book and in the your podcast that I listen to and things, it it does come across as you know you're not coming from like kind of a lofty psycho babble type place, but you're saying, hey, I've been through a lot of this, and so here's some things that worked and whatnot. But also, obviously, being you know reinforced by the training that you've received and and evidence based, which makes it super relatable. I think. Yeah. No, and it was interesting. Part of um, I, I think for me, like going through the training was actually quite therapeutic. Like as I was learning to help other people treat their own social anxiety, I was saying in my own head, like, wow, this is, this stuff works. I'm going to try this. (laughs) And so I made myself like an experiment of one and, and, you know, did all the stuff I was learning and found that it really worked. And so it really resonated with me and made me, you know, get on board with, um, with, with using these techniques to help other people because I could relate. And I think that's a that's a combination that that people have given me a lot of feedback about. They appreciate that that while the techniques are evidence based, you know, I'm not some academic sitting on high in an ivory tower saying do this, you know, try this, and all your mm. you know fears will disappear. That you know, I've I've lived this, and that you know, it's it's not it's not completely gone. Like I certainly have my moments. Like I you know get kind of deferential around people who are. Uh, who have authority or like I get starstruck around famous people and act kind of weirdly formal. Um, I have a hard time negotiating, but you know, so many other areas of my life and social anxiety have gotten so much better. Like I remember in college, like my wardrobe consisted mostly of like black, white and denim. And like now, like my favorite color to wear is orange. I'm actually wearing an orange shirt right now. And I, 
I remember like I wouldn't buy shoes that click clacked on the floor because I thought they drew too much attention and I would look for soft soled shoes. And now I don't, I just don't care. I buy whatever shoes I want. Mm -hmm. And so just like little things like that, I have found that I look back and I say, oh, like I, I, I didn't, I, I, that, that, I didn't realize that that was happening in real time. It's only when you look back and, and say like, oh, I wouldn't have done that before. Or, oh, that had been, that was a problem for me before. Or, hey, like I just went to this party without giving it a second thought. Or I just gave a talk without like silently hoping that the building would explode, you know, before my talk and I wouldn't have to give it. So I think, um, yeah, for, for me, while there's still certainly some little like hangers on, um, in general, you know, these techniques have all have worked for me and I'm living proof that you can change. Yeah. And I think that's, that's awesome. even maybe a good, you know, kind of segue into my next question because you talked right there about kind of this, things have gotten better, but there's still some moments, right? And in the book, you talk about instead of this binary, because somebody's listening and saying, well, I'm not diagnosed with social anxiety, but you think of social anxiety kind of along a, a spectrum, right? Can you talk some about that? Yeah, absolutely. So, so social anxiety, I mean, everybody, you know, 99% of people can relate to socially awkward moments. Like, um, all of us have, uh, you know, been in some kind of situation where, where we feel a little off or a little self-conscious. You know, everybody gets nervous before important interpersonal situations like a job interview. And so I think everybody with the, with the exception of the 1% of people who are diagnosed as psychopaths, um, you know, and therefore, like, don't, you know, really don't care what people think of them. Um, everybody can relate. So, so it's a very relatable topic. Now, if we move along the continuum, then 40% of people identify as shy. And so that is just the kind of everyday way of saying socially anxious. And for folks who are shy, they may uh, you know, just get you know, get more self-conscious than average um, in social situations, but in general, it doesn't get in the way of their life. Okay, so then we move along the continuum a little more, and we get to what I call capital S social anxiety. And so this is the 13% of Americans for whom social anxiety is a problem that either causes them great distress or gets in the way of their life. So, so this is for folks who might turn down a job promotion because it would require them to go do public speaking or, you know, travel and meet, you know, with new accounts. It might be a student who decides consciously like, okay, I am just not going to raise my hand in class and I'm going to forego that 20% of my grade that mm. is class participation. Or it's people who think like, well, okay, I guess I am just stuck with the friends that I have because I um, am not willing or able to to put myself out there and and meet new people. So it's it's the folks for whom social anxiety really stymies their life. And but that but thirteen percent is a lot of people. So yeah, so many people can can relate to this. It's the third most common psychiatric disorder after depression and alcohol use disorder. Hmm. Mm. Well, do you mind? So one question that I have, you, you talked about those differences between going from socially awkward moments to being shy to being socially anxious. But could you explain a little bit about the difference between being shy or maybe even being introverted versus being socially anxious? Yes, absolutely. So I'm, I'm really glad you asked that question. 
So the, the main difference between being introverted and socially anxious is that introversion is like an inborn personality trait. So introverts are kind of more inner directed. They may have a lower tolerance for external stimulation, whether that's social stimulation or noise or clutter or anything like that. They may feel a, a preference for connecting one-on-one uh, -on -one or in a very small group. And by contrast, extroverts often have a higher tolerance for stimulation. They, they like the buzz of an audience or, um, or just more, you know, more stimulation and might be more outer directed. So as a little tangent, I think it's important to say that extroverts can also be socially anxious because social mm -hmm. anxiety is fundamentally about what I call the reveal. And that is that there is this perception that something is wrong with us. And that unless we work really hard to hide or conceal it, it will be revealed and it will become obvious to everyone around us that this, you know, we have this fatal flaw, that we have this, uh, this, this problem. Those, those problems, those perceived deficits, and I, I'd say perceived deliberately, uh, generally fall into one of four categories. So one, it could be that it will become obvious that people will see um, signs of my anxiety. They'll see that I'm blushing. They'll see my hands are trembling. They will hear my voice quaver. Um, they'll, they'll, they'll see that I'm sweaty. And, and that will give me away. That is that they'll think that I'm an anxious freak or they'll think that I'm weak or something like that, something judgmental. The second uh, category is our appearance. So people, it will become obvious that I, my hair is weird or that I'm fat or that I'm ugly. And so that, that perception of not, not living up to some imagined standard is the second category. And the third and fourth are the biggest ones. And so those are number three are social skills. So people will see that I have nothing to say. People will see that my mind keeps going blank. People will think that I'm boring. And so that, that idea that somehow our social skills are lacking is, is another big category of perceived deficits. And the last is kind of our entire character, like our entire personality. People will think I'm stupid. People will think I'm incompetent. Nobody wants me here. So just kind of a general overall rejection of, of oneself. And so those four categories are what make up the reveal, which is really what characterizes social anxiety. Okay, so to link it back to introversion <laughs> and social anxiety, I'll, I'll, I took you out to the, <laughs> awesome. out to the Shire, I'll no, bring you back now. No, it's okay. great. It's All good. Right. Very good. Um, so, so folks who are extroverts can also be socially anxious. And so, for instance, um, one of my favorite people to reference for this is this young man I know who is a teacher and a stand-up comic. So he loves an audience. He feels pulled to the stage. He loves standing up there and having all the eyes on him and simultaneously thinks that everybody hates him and is judging him. So it's really this rock and a hard place. Like people might be pulled to the microphone or might love parties or might love to be the center of attention, but also simultaneously worry that nobody really likes them or that they're boring or you know any number of those reveals. So, so social anxiety and extroversion can absolutely go together. So that is a very long way of uh, trying to explain the difference between social anxiety, which is this 
this perception that can absolutely be challenged and should be challenged because, again, it's a perception. It's mm. not actually true. There might be a grain of truth in it. Maybe we do actually blush, but people are not judging us negatively to the point that we think they are. Or maybe we do have trouble with word finding in public. We tend to stumble over our words, but people aren't going to reject us to the extent that we think they are. So, so that perception can be worked on, whereas introversion is a personality trait that is just how we're wired and doesn't need to be changed, nor should it. So, hmm. so to sum it all up, I like to say that, that introversion is your way while social anxiety gets in your way. Hmm. Mm, that's yeah. good. That's that really good. good. So you talk some for folks that consider themselves shy or socially anxious or anywhere kind of along that spectrum that maybe want to move towards being comfortable and confident, right? You talk about some things that we tend to do that aren't helpful. And then you offer some suggestions for things that maybe we could do instead that would be helpful. So I know avoidance is one of the things that is not only not helpful, but even is kind of harmful, right? Right, absolutely. So avoidance is, avoidance actually goes beyond just social anxiety. And it is the thing that maintains like most mental health problems. So avoidance is just what it sounds like. It's avoiding the problem. It's like procrastinating or, you know, just not, not dealing with whatever in terms of anxiety your fear might be. And so avoidance can take two forms. So there's overt avoidance, which is like not showing up at the party or, you know, not going for the job interview or otherwise, you know, kind of staying home with the blinds drawn. Um, but then there's covert avoidance, which is where you go to the party or you, you know, you, you put yourself out there as it were, but you do all these things that kind of keep you safe or, or that you perceive keep you safe. So you might go to the party, but spend most of the time scrolling through your phone or like spend uh, most of the time, like petting the host's dog, or you might get really drunk so that you don't feel as anxious, or you only stick to the person that you came with and only talk to that person. So there's all these little behaviors that are called safety behaviors that therefore get the credit for keeping you safe. It's kind of like Dumbo's magic feather, you know, like in, in, in the movie where he has the magic feather and he can fly but mm -hmm. it's it's really just the placebo effect that he yeah. can actually he can actually do it all along without the feather. It's kind of like that that the these safety behaviors get the credit for nothing horrible happening for not getting rejected when in fact we were safe all along and we weren't going to get rejected and we we but we never get the chance to learn that because we don't uh, let go of what I call safety behaviors are the life preserver that's actually keeping you underwater. There's a perception that it's keeps it's saving our life, but really it's hindering us. Hmm. Yeah, mm. man, I'm like thinking of all the times in social situations that I've spent like scrolling through my phone because I didn't know anybody there. Oh, mm. and, and like I mean, and don't certainly don't feel guilty about that. Like, how many of us have done that? Probably everybody. And I think yeah. it's a natural thing. Like, nobody likes to be in a room where they don't know anyone. It, you know, it's we're we're wired to to think that that is unsafe. You know, we're social creatures and we want to be with our tribe. And if we're in a room full of strangers, that's a social threat. So absolutely yeah. don't feel guilty. And at the same time, you know, just, just recognize it for what it is, that it's, it's avoidance that we all do. Yeah. Um, and that I hear, and that actually leads me to um, another technique, which is to give yourself some structure. 
Because I know if I'm in a room where I don't know anyone, you know, like I can feel my heart in my throat. Like I, I just like anyone, I don't like that. And, and so what I do is I try to, to, to give myself a mission because anxiety is driven by uncertainty. It's the what ifs, like, or the like, oh, what, what will happen if? It's, it's the, the things we don't know are what drives anxiety. And so if we can give ourselves some certainty, so like if we go to a party, and we, you know, don't know very many people or like the person we do know who came, who we came with, like goes to the bathroom and leaves us, you know, stranded, you know, um, what we can do is say, okay, I'm going to talk to two different people that I don't know. And then I have permission to, you know, <laughs> go get a, go, you know, get a snack or, you know, go hide in the bathroom for a little while. But I'm going to, I'm going to do these two things. I'm going to talk to two people I don't know and, and that will give me some structure. And so that, that can actually be really helpful. Or um, in the book, I talk about this lovely experiment that was done by two Australian researchers, Drs. Simon Thompson and Ron Rapay. And what they did is they had women with social anxiety and women who were kind of the opposite thereof. They were kind of more confidently chatty than average uh, come into the same situation. So one at a time, they had each woman come into what they thought was a waiting room for a psychological experiment in which there was um, a man seated. And unbeknownst to her, the experiment began as soon as she walked through the door. She thinks it's a waiting room, but this man turns to her and just makes a, an offhand comment like, oh, I hope we don't have to wait too long and just waits and sees what happens. So no, he's, he's working for the researchers. He's, he's a mm -hmm. research assistant, but she doesn't know that. And so every 30 seconds for five minutes, he'll make another comment and just see where the conversation goes. So this is the unstructured situation where there's, you know, there's no mission, there's no purpose. So then after five minutes, another researcher comes in and says, oh, thank you guys for coming. really appreciate it. Okay, here's what we're going to do. For the next five minutes, I'd like you to talk to each other and get to know each other as well as you can in the next five minutes. So now there is structure, there is a mission, there is purpose. And when you compare the, the groups, so you've got these, these different groups. And so the women with social anxiety in the unstructured situation, you know, don't do so well. Like that, that makes sense. Their social competence doesn't look so great because they're anxious. But then when you put them in a situation with structure, they do really well. And they do almost as well as the women who are more confidently chatty than average in that same structured situation. So that's, so not only do they rise mm -hmm. to meet, you know, kind of like a, a median, like average social competence, they exceed that and are almost up there with the women who do this without a thought, which I thought was amazing. So all you need is some structure, so like a purpose. And you can do that in your own head. You can walk into the party, like for, I don't know, for my office holiday party, I can walk in and say, all right, I'm going to talk to my principal investigator, my clinical supervisor, everybody I supervise, and the office manager, and then I can leave. And, I, and, that's, and that's what I do. And I actually end up having a much better time than I predict. And I often end up not leaving when I give myself permission to leave because by then I'm kind of in the mix and everything is going well. And so I, I give myself an out, but I often don't even end up needing to take it. So that structure is really helpful and really important. 
Yeah. Mm, that's good. And you even yeah. tell some stories in the book of maybe even kind of funny ones, funny versions of this, where there's, I think, a guy who says, I'm going to get rejected by 300 women in the next year. Or, you know, things, or someone who I think he asks for a burger refill because there's a sign at the restaurant that says free refills. Things like yes. that, where they say, I'm going to get rejected so that I can experience it and notice, like, oh, I didn't die. It's okay by asking for something kind of outlandish. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. No, because there, yeah, there are multiple, there's so much to unpack in there. I love this. Um, so one, one is that anxiety tells us two lies. So one is that the worst case scenario is a foregone conclusion. You know, that if we, you know, that, that our, that our social life is like a laser maze. And if we make one false move, you know, all these alarms are, are going to go off all around us. And that's not actually true that, you know, we think we're walking on this kind of social tightrope, but instead we're more on the sidewalk or even, even like an expressway that the, the, the bounds of what we can do that, you know, people won't judge us for is actually quite wide. Um, so there's that. And then also I, I love the, so the burger refill story is one of my favorites. So this is a, um, this is a guy named Zha Zhang. And so he came from China as a teenager and his goal was to be the next Bill Gates. And so he really wanted to work in tech and had worked his way towards that. And in his 30s was in a, you know, kind of a corporate tech job and said, okay, it's now or never, I'm going to, I'm going to bail and start a startup. I'm going to, I'm going to do this. Uh, I'm going to follow my dream and, and do this myself. So he did that in, in the context of being newly married, having a baby on the way and like was really making all these changes at once. So when his funder pulled his funding, he was really shell-shocked and was really uh, stressed because he had a family to support. He had a number of employees, but he found himself really stymied by asking for, for asking for more money because he was afraid of getting rejected. So he decided to put himself through this boot camp uh, that he called 100 Days of Rejection, where every day for 100 days, he would try to get rejected to build up a thick skin and be able to handle hearing no or criticism better. And so this was the this was the second day of his experiment. And he went into the burger joint and uh, you know enjoyed his bacon cheeseburger and his soda, and then saw on the soda machine that there was a sign that said free refills. And so you know a light bulb went off above his head, and he said, "Okay, here's how I'm going to get rejected." And he went up to the counter and said, "Hey, I really enjoyed my burger. Can I have a burger refill?" And the guy at the counter kind of kind of looked at him. It's like, what? And you know, there's some back and forth. And so finally, the guy gets it, and he's like, "Oh, sorry, man, we don't we don't do burger refills." And uh, and so Jada says, oh, "Okay, no, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. You know, I'd like your place even more if you started doing burger refills." And he saunters off. And so the 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 thing that he took from this is that he deliberately decided to ask as if it were completely reasonable that he. He set the tone. So he, you know, stood up straight. He looked the guy in the eye. He squared his shoulders. And he asked as if this were the most natural thing in the world. And so it, he discovered that when you ask in a respectful way, when you, when you set the tone, that people respond in kind. And what happens is it sets up two feedback loops. One, it sets it up for the other person so that, you know, when you ask respectfully, they, they respond respectfully. But also it sets up a feedback loop within yourself. And so if you see yourself, you know, standing up straight, looking the guy in the eye, not asking in some kind of sheepish, 
like apologizing for being alive way, you see yourself doing that and then you start to believe you can. So that's why I like to say to try to put behavior before confidence. If we wait to feel confident, we're, we're probably not going to do the thing that we're afraid of. But if we slowly do the thing, you know, we don't have to jump into the deep end with both feet, but, you know, we can kind of inch in. If we see ourselves doing it, then the confidence catches up. And that's how true confidence is built, that we go in and we blunder a little bit or we feel incompetent for a little bit. But as we see ourselves, you know, working through it and see ourselves like making it happen, then that's that's where the true confidence comes from. Mm, that's good. I mean, and, and we, so many of us can take so much of that um, in, in a number of different ways, right? Um, even just moving beyond just the social anxiety piece in that example with your, with that individual. That's really good. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I love, I love that story. Cause uh, I mean, I think it, it bears, uh, this is in the book too, but like for that, that was day two. And for day one, he decided to ask a security guard in his office building, if he could borrow a hundred dollars and there he uses all sorts of safety behaviors. Like he kind of like runs up to the guy really fast. He like kind of blurts out his request. He's hunched over, you know, he doesn't make eye contact. He's doing all of these things that, that kind of broadcast to the guy, like, it's okay. Like I wouldn't accept this request either, or no, you shouldn't take me seriously. And he realizes after the fact that, that all those safety behaviors really got in the way because when he asked, can I borrow $100 from you? The guy said no, but then he said, why? And Ja instead just said, okay, no, all right, no, no problem, but sorry, thanks a lot, and ran away. Whereas he realized in retrospect that the guy asking why was an offer to extend the conversation. And he could have told the truth and said, you know, I'm trying to develop a thick skin, so I'm forcing myself to make absurd requests. Or he could have offered to like leave his driver's license as collateral, you know, something. He could have he could have kept this going, but instead he used speed and kind of sheepishness to protect him and ended up not, you know, not getting what he needed. Well, I guess he did get what he needed because he got rejected, which was the goal, but you you know what I mean. And so, <laughs> so that that contrast of, you know, setting the tone in one way versus setting the tone in a much more confident way, even if you don't feel confident, this is the fake it till you make it, right? Like this is, mm-hmm. this, this is where Amy Cuddy's power posing comes from. This is, this is putting your, putting your body first. That makes, that makes a really big difference. That's really good. Yeah. Um, and I've totally done that power pose before. That has been so helpful in certain Isn't situations. <laughs> I, yes, yes, yes. I've totally done that. In, um, in women's at conferences, I always wonder how many of the stalls are filled with women <laughs> who actually need to do their business and how many of them are standing there like Wonder Woman. It's yep. really funny. Yes. Yep. Oh, that's awesome. That's, I've totally done it before. Yep. Um, well, so we've talked a lot about uh, ways for an individual to challenge their social anxieties, but we definitely have folks who might not be, they may not consider themselves to be super anxious and may be wondering about how they can help others. What advice or tips would you give to someone like a parent or a youth pastor or someone in ministry um, or family member, friend, um, in terms of helping the people that they interact with? Oh, I'm so happy you asked that. That's so great. Because like I, because this is not in the book, but I've been getting a lot of questions about that recently. And so I'm, I'm really glad that you asked that. So, yeah. so first of all, I would say like, let me commend everyone who 
wants to do that? Who wants to help somebody who they know is anxious or socially anxious? And so the second thing I, I always say, okay, so we're, you know, we're, we're not our friend's therapist. That would be inappropriate. But I think the, the analogy extends where I say that a good therapist is like a good bra, that they're, the, the job is to both push and support. And so <laughs> to, to try to, you know, to, to, so I think the same principles apply. And so, but, but okay. <laughs> but here, okay, so here's a question for you, though, um, because this is where I think a lot of people get tripped up. So when a friend reveals that they, not, not even with anxiety, but just with anything, you know, that they're struggling or that they're in pain, you know, as a kind and generous person, like, what is your instinct? Like, what do you do? Well, in, in my friend role, I usually will, I, so it's hard to take off that, that therapist hat, right? That, right, that, right? that is, there is that that is on, but maintaining those boundaries you know, it's usually identify at what point, okay, I, I need to give them some names, hey, and just encourage and support um, and nudge them into the direction of seeking mental health care um, for themselves if it's, if it's truly at that point or if it's just supporting them as a friend and just holding space for them to talk, then, you know, then that's what I would do as a friend. So that's amazing. So, so you're you're at like a higher order, I think, of of <laughs> of, of, of you know, kind of knowing what to do. Because I think so. I mean, and, and tell me what you think. Like, have you seen this in your practice? That usually, like, when a friend reveals pain, that like the the instinct is that okay, well, I want to help this friend pain. I want to I want to make them well, feel better. Yeah. Yes, yeah. absolutely. But it's knowing what the best step is. Yeah. And we don't always know that, but to the best of our ability, yeah. Trying to say, okay, is it, when's it time to, to connect them with someone? Yeah. Well, and that's what I was going to say is like, you know, I was a teacher for a bit and I worked in ministry. And so I think for me, I was always trying to find, especially with youth, but find this balance of, you know, not putting somebody in a situation where they're going to have kind of a panic attack or something where they're really uncomfortable, but also pushing and challenging to say, hey, you can grow a little bit, like try to get outside of your comfort zone. And so I guess the the question is, you know, kind of where is that line of challenging people to do things that they're maybe uncomfortable with, but also when to say like, okay, you don't have to, we can kind of ease up a bit. That, so that is perfect. You, you basically just gave my answer for me. That That's amazing. And so, because, okay. <laughs> well, I read so your I, book, I, so. Well, that's not. <laughs> Um, so the, so I, okay. So I've, I've found that a lot of times what happens if somebody discloses that they're uncomfortable or they're socially anxious or like this, you know, this makes them nervous that the friend will say, oh, well then let's not go or well, okay, well then, you know, you don't have to do this. But then what also happens is that the friend registers that and says like, okay, well now I'm not going to invite that friend to the next party. Or I'm not gonna, you know, include them in something that I think they might not enjoy. And the, you know, the their heart is in the right place. They're trying not to increase their friend's pain. And so short term, that might be helpful in relieving anxiety, but long term, that's a terrible strategy. And so, Robert, what you said exactly what I'd recommend is to like be their champion, is to like, you know, support them, you know, respect their very real fears. But at the same time, to try to encourage them to stretch and grow and try things that are just outside their comfort zone. And so you asked about the line. And so I would say, ask them, you know, ask like, well, what what would you like to try? Like, what do you think your, you know, like is is something that's a little bit challenging that I can do with you? And so there's a line between reassurance, 
which is not helpful and is saying like, oh, it'll be fine or like nothing bad will happen. Like these are false promises because ultimately you can't control what happens to them out in the world. But you can, instead of reassurance, give support, which is uh, basically telling the truth and emphasizing how capable they are. Saying things like, well, the first few minutes are the hardest. Or last time we did this, you were really glad you did. Or you are strong and can get through this. And then they can also give them some you know, heartfelt affirmation. Like, I'm really happy you come. Or I really appreciate your company. So, uh, so certainly not, you know, not invalidating or brushing aside their worry. But instead, be their champion and talking with them and seeing you know, what, what do they want to accomplish and what can your role be in helping them do that? Yeah, it's so good. And you even mentioned some common advice, you know, things that people would say, just be yourself or, you know, just go for it, put yourself out there. Or maybe even like all the way on the negative side, like, well, you don't want to die alone, do you? Right. Can you uh, talk about some of those? Right, right, right. So yeah, I mean, I, the, the book is called How to Be Yourself because that is the advice that we get as you know shy or socially anxious people like oh just be yourself like it's okay and I, I have like very strong mixed feelings about that advice because on the one hand it's really insulting like it's it's as mm. if we, it's like oh is that all I have to do I'd never thought of that before like you know <laughs> like that's it and it implies that you know that we can think through the buzz of anxiety or that we can just be ourselves when we feel like we're under this intense social threat like it's it's not it's, it's way easier said than done. And at the same time, that's exactly right, that we don't have to put on some kind of false front or some kind of persona to go out into the world, that we are enough just as we are. And that this, to go back to the definition of social anxiety, that this perception of um, a, a deficit or a fatal flaw is exactly that is a perception. And so, but if we, if we spend all our time protecting ourselves, then we never get to learn that, you know, to refute the two lies of anxiety that, you know, that horrible things are not, you know, destined to happen and that we can't handle it. Ah, actually, I don't know if I actually, if I, if I talked about the, the second, the second lie. So the, um, the second lie of social anxiety is that we can't that we're not capable. And so that's where the confidence bit comes in of putting action before confidence and, and, you know, watching your, I can't handle it to, to, to do your best to, to be yourself by, you know, giving yourself some structure, you know, not avoiding things. And something I didn't talk about is trying to turn your attention inside out. And by that, I mean that when we find ourselves feeling self-conscious, our attention naturally turns inward and we start to monitor what we've said. Like, oh my gosh, I think that sounded stupid. Why did I say that? Or we start to think maybe I would look more casual with my hands in my pockets. And, and so that, that, that attention is solely on us and that eats up all our bandwidth and makes us miss out on the moment. It makes us miss out on either what the person we're talking to is saying or it eats up so much bandwidth that we don't have enough left over for like not spilling our drink on somebody or not tripping over our own feet. And that's how a lot of those socially awkward moments actually happen is because we're too focused on ourselves and we end up ending, we end up getting into, you know, this kind of snafu. So 
to try to turn our attention outward and to focus on the person we're talking to and to listen really closely to what they're saying or to you know focus on the environment, essentially to pay attention to anything except ourselves. Hmm. And that will naturally free up a lot of that bandwidth and allow us to respond more naturally, to respond in the moment, to actually, you know, to, to have kind of the little antennae of curiosity wiggle and say like, oh, tell me more about that. Or, mm. oh, really? I, I think this. And that is being yourself. So when we're, ironically, when we're not focused on ourselves, when we're not doing all this self-monitoring to keep ourselves safe, we can be more authentic. And in studies, it's found that when we focus outward, we come across as more authentic and we're better liked. And that is fundamentally, you know, being ourselves. Hmm. That's so good. So one last question for you before we kind of wrap up here. One thing that I've noticed in like myself and people my age and just young professionals, right, struggling with is all throughout our life we're like we're confined in these situations like school and all that where you make friends because they're right there right but then you graduate college and you go out and all of a sudden i think almost everybody i know is saying man how do you make friends as an adult because all of a sudden you don't see the same people all the time right and so all of a sudden it feels like wow it's really hard to make friends you touch on that some in right towards the end of the book, and I know you've talked about it some on your podcast, but what would you say to uh, someone who's saying all of a sudden, hey, I have no idea how to make friends. What the heck? Yeah, I would say, first of all, that you're not alone, that you know that is absolutely a huge challenge. And it's, the, it's, it's funny you ask that because that's the question that I've been getting the most far and away since the book came out is like, how do I make friends after college? And, and so in the book, I talk about three, three different things that, that folks with social anxiety or anybody, you know, might, might not think of as obvious. And so the first is that you need repetition, that you need to see the same people on a regular basis. And so when we're trying to make friends, you know, oftentimes we're given the advice of, oh, go volunteer or go to a meetup. And, you know, those are are absolutely fine if the same people are there every week or every, you know, whatever, every period of time. But, you know, if it's a if it's a meetup where the faces change, um, you know, every meetup, that's not going to be helpful. Or if it's a, you know, a class, but nobody's interacting, like if it's a lecture class, like you might see the same people, but there's no reason to talk to them. That's not going to work either. So you want to you want to choose some kind of activity um, or circumstance where you see the same people and have a chance to interact with them every day. So for me, um, I've moved across the country quite a bit. And so uh, the thing that have, has saved my social life has been preschool co-ops. That my, my two young sons were in preschool at the time of these moves. And so I would see the same people at pickup or since this was a co-op on a, you know, on a co-op shift, like every day, every week. And that was instrumental in, in getting to know them. So repetition is number one. The second is uh, disclosure. And so that, interestingly, is simply giving people something to work with. Folks with social anxiety or folks who are shy often don't talk about themselves. And it, it feels wrong somehow to talk about ourselves. It feels like we're taking up too much space. It feels like we're you know making it about ourselves. But actually what's happening is that then we we don't we don't reveal anything about ourselves. We don't give the other person 
anything to work with or to connect with us on. And so, so to try to talk about like what you are thinking or doing or feeling, it doesn't have to be profound. It doesn't have to be, you know, like deep. It can just be that you have a song in your head that you heard at the gas station. And then the other person is, oh, well, what song? You know, and that, that lights the fire for conversation. It can be that, you know, you've been thinking about trying to get your kid into guitar lessons and, you know, and then they say, oh, well, I have, you know, I have a great guitar teacher or, you know, I've always wanted to do that. There are a million directions this can go in, but you have to kind of, uh, you know, sow, sow the garden a little bit um, and reveal things about yourself that let people, um, that, that, that let people kind of get their grappling hooks into the conversation. So, so that's the second thing. And then, so the third thing is what's called positive regard. And basically that is simply showing people that you like them. Uh, I've met a lot of people and worked with a lot of people with social anxiety who, um, you know, and this, we could talk about this like as a totally different topic, but you know, when they say hello, they often don't smile or they, you know, if they see someone they like, they might avoid them. And so what you want to do is to simply show people that you're happy to see them. And so that could be lighting up when, you know, they say hello to you or to initiate and say hi to them because that certainly shows that you like them. And so to try to um, initiate and respond in kind and just, you know, show people that you're happy to see them. And that goes a long way for especially for other folks who might be a little bit anxious or might be a little ambivalent to reassuring them that like you're a safe person to talk to and that and that you like them and and that will in turn lay the groundwork for future conversations. So those three things, so repetition, disclosure and positive regard. Hmm. I think that's so good, especially the repetition yeah. one sticks with me ever since I read it because and you even talk about this some um, we have this idea that like oh I'll go and instantly hit it off with somebody who was like made to be my best friend and right. that what you reference there is that's not necessarily the case it's seeing people over and over again and they just have to be nice mm-hmm. enough and then you develop that bond right instead of oh we're looking for like our magical best friend that is somewhere in the world right exactly and so i think it it's uh important to remember that the term is like how do i make a friend as opposed to how do I find a friend? Like we mm. have this idea that, yeah. you know, finding a friend is like just finding this diamond in the rough, you know, but in fact, really the the rough is full of potential diamonds. Yeah. And, and so as we just get to know people, they become our friends. It's not, we don't need to like, you know, hunt them like a poacher and like, we're not going <laughs> to walk out of an event, you know, the first time we meet them arm in arm and you know, be BFFs forever. That this is a process. And there, I found a statistic that said that it takes six to eight conversations. So more than just saying hi, but an actual conversation before someone considers us a friend. And so that's a really helpful uh, kind of metric that that takes me away from kind of my perfectionism of wanting to find a friend and sets kind of a realistic expectation of like, oh wait, this takes time. I'm going to have to, you know, chat with this person or get to chat with this person, not have to even, uh, you know, because we want to be curious about other people and and get to know them. And so to do that six to eight times, then that will likely yield something deeper. And for me, at least it helps me not give up if we don't hit it off immediately. Mm. Yeah. 
That's, no, that's so really good. good. Yeah. Well, and I'm, it makes me think about, you know, like our life group model that we have at, at our congregation where meeting every week with a small group of other families and over time watching our families grow and just connecting every single week. I mean, they fit within each of these, um, these three little tips. So, and that was a great model for us finding friends when we had first moved out here to Waco. So yeah, that's so, perfect. I yeah, love that. That's- that's awesome. That's a great story. Yeah. yeah. Hey, if you want to connect with Dr. Hendrickson, you can find her at ellenhendrickson.com, on Twitter at, at Ellen Hendrickson. You can listen to The Savvy Psychologist wherever you get your podcasts, or you can go by How to Be Yourself on Amazon or wherever else you get books. Her website also features a bunch of free resources. I think there's even like a free email course for social anxiety. Um, if you want to connect with Holly, you can find her at hollyoxhandler.com or on Twitter at hollyoxhandler. You can connect with me at robert-vore.com or on any social media at robertvor. Dr. Henriksen, thank you so much for joining us today. Do you have any uh, parting words for our listeners today? Just that it was a delight to talk to you guys. Thank you so much for having me on and thanks for your good work. What you're doing is really important and I wish you all the best. Thank you so much. It was good talking with you. Absolutely. You guys take care. You too. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the CXMH podcast. Want to score some major brownie points? Leave us five stars and an honest review on iTunes. Follow us on social media at CXMH Podcast and email us with questions, comments, and interview requests at CXMHpodcast at gmail.com. A final note. If you're in a dark place today, struggling with suicidal thoughts, you are not alone. Professional help is available 24-7 at 1-800-273-8255.